0: To Deconstructing yourself, the podcast for meta-modern mutants interested in world peace, meditation, awakening, hardcore dharma, psychedelics, Alastair Reynolds, predictive processing, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking once again with Steve Eisenstadt. Stephen Eisenstadt, PhD, is the founder of Pacifica Graduate Institute and the Academy of Imaginal Arts and Sciences. He is a world-renowned professor of depth psychology, an imagination specialist, and has collaborated with many notable masters in the field of depth psychology, including Joseph Campbell, James Hillman, Marion Woodman, and Robert Johnson. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call The Power of the Imaginal with Stephen Eisenstadt. Steve, you have a best-selling book right now as we're talking.
1: I do. I couldn't be more delighted. Yes, The Imagination Matrix.
0: Awesome. Congratulations. That's great news. Thank you. So why do you think anybody cares about The Imagination Matrix? Obviously, I care, but when I'm out there in the world and I mention the word imagination or the imaginal, the kind of like mood that comes back very often is hey, that's just imaginary, that's nothing, that's fake, that's just your mind. So
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's why the book, I think, is so popular. And the concept is gaining so much traction, because we're not talking about that imagination. That imagination is everywhere, right? It's produced, it's constructed. And just as you said, it's part of the rational thinking, the rational mind, or it's part of Hollywood or part of a different kind of social media this imagination is the imagination that's indigenous to our soul, to the psyche. It has an autonomy of its own making. And when we touch into that resource, that imagination, something completely different occurs and unfolds.
0: Good. So how is this different? What? How do we access this different imagination?
1: Well, that is the question. And The way to access, and I lay this out step by step in the book in many different ways, is to really take the time to first and foremost follow curiosity. So it's not going to be an imagination out there in the world that we see. It is going to be an imagination that opens from the inside out. And something very different happens. Now, a lot of us are familiar with journeying, right? We journey in one way or the next. A lot of people are experimenting with journeying in different qualities, states of consciousness, and using everything from plant medicines to different formulations of not only ingestion, but guided in a particular way to really get into a quality of life and a quality of experience, a dimension of consciousness that in and of its own right has stories to tell and presents imagery and presents ways of seeing and knowing that is very different than manufactured imagination.
0: It's such an interesting question to me. You said that uh, curiosity is the main thing. And as you know, I'm here with a little child at home these days, and all I see is curiosity. He's just curious about everything, continuously, constantly. Everything's interesting, and yet by the time someone's, I don't know, maybe 15, they're not interested in anything anymore. It seems like there's this sort of flatness, everything's known. How do we take humans and reduce their curiosity so tremendously, so quickly? What is it about the way we live that is so anti-curious?
1: Well, that's right, anti-curious. And what you said earlier, you know, it's as if we're born with curiosity. It's part of the blueprint from the beginning, right? It already has a template. We are involved in the world in a very curious way. As you suggested, we come in as children. And as child, it's a way of being. It's a way of evolving and supporting ourselves. And when curiosity opens, oh my goodness, not only am I perceiving the world differently, but also I'm engaged with different images and entities and... Landscapes illuminate, you know, it's, it's a very different way. And then something happens. You're right, so right. Then something happens. And I think it begins around four or five years old. You're still there just a bit. You're now beginning to become socialized. Usually parents are worried about, uh oh, how is he going to do in school? What's his reading sca-? In fact, in kindergarten, you know, before you're going into first grade, everybody's measured already at that point. How capable are they? Are they reading correctly? Are they able to do the work? And are they prepared yet for the first grade? Do you see how that begins to condition out the curious mind, the natural mind, and we begin to evolve and develop what we call the rational mind, which of course is necessary. It is, it's important. It's not either or. It's just that when we continue then down that track, something else begins to happen and we distance from our natural inborn curiosity and move much more towards the busy mind and the rational mind and the goal orientation. Already in second grade, we're teaching to the test, right? We're teaching to the test. And at that point, you know, people are asked to get the right answers, to keep score, to make sure, you you know, you're getting enough points to succeed. Hmm? Then fifth grade happens. Then seventh grade, and of course, social media and just the enormous amount of information that's coming forward, most of which is coming forward through a programmer's code, the algorithms, of course, and that starts so early now. Kids are on their devices at what, two, three years old already, and then by six, seven, eight, we're just flooded with the media. But that imagination is different. Is it evocative? Yes. Yes. Is some of it extraordinary? Of course. Are the games that are coming forward, the gaming that's happening, you know, intricate and sophisticated in their development? Yeah, they are. The good news is that we get engaged and we're sharing information. And, you know, it's exciting. And there's a level of full-on participation with the games or with the social media. That's the good news. The bad news is we separate from ourselves quite quickly and quite easily. Now we're starting to construct not only our self, but our avatars, our online identities. We're leaving that indigenous imagination, right? That imaginal capacity that we're born with gives way now to a different kind of intelligence, a different way of being and participating in the world. Now I travel a lot. And in fact, I'm just going back to China in a month or so. And there, the amount of time spent in the machine and on the machine or the device is profound. It's really not helping because at 16, people are beginning to experience the distance between relating to self and other. In fact, this is going to be so interesting. So listen to this. I found it almost unbelievable, actually, that in China now, one of the crises, the big crisis, is that people are not connecting with each other in intimate relationships. So yeah, I mean, you know, there's this amazing, amazing motivation to go to school, to get into the university, to really do well, and everything's oriented towards that. But with the amount of social media that's happening is libido sexuality, right? The capacity to be in a relationship with another person is on an amazing decline. So much so that post high school, going into college, in the Chinese system now, there is the necessity to have the first year. This is what is so startling and stunning. It Actually, it's happening in three or four countries that I've been part of, that the first year at the university, one semester so there's two semesters for both semesters one class in each semester is devoted fully ready for this fully to how it is to talk with another person particularly a person of the same or opposite sex that i might be interested in developing an intimate relationship with i mean really i mean i'm spending a lot of time online i get that i'm lightning fast, you know, doing this, that, and the other, and connecting, and it's all abbreviated and fast, but to really actually have a conversation, how do you ask another person out for a date? Now, we take that for granted, most of us, right? How do you do that, really? What do you say, right? Do you go out to that person's home? Do you invite them to your place? Do you invite them to a meal? Do you take a walk in the park? And if I do, what do I say? Do you hear what I'm saying? So what happens is we begin to lose our capacity to be with ourselves most deeply, most authentically, and with another person. In the United States, it is so sad. I'm now working with a number of groups and a lot of school districts are sponsoring it for parents. They see their children in the middle school and the senior high school years socially isolated, truly, up in the room, online, on the screen, not really able to deepen into friendship groups, and particularly with another person. That's really heartbreaking, and there's such fear among parents now of those age groups, right? What do we do? Particularly if it moves into cyber addiction, then what? You know, how do we deal with it? So my work really invites a person into their own imagination. And this isn't the imagination that is constructed. This is an imagination, as I said, that has a spontaneity of its own. The reason for that is when I get in touch with the figures of imagination, right? The landscapes, the characters that come forward. When I open my curious mind and deepen into the interaction, the dynamism that's always going on in imagination, the curiosity that happens hey, I'm related to myself and to other people much differently. I come to life from the inside out. I actually recover my psychic libido. My libido gets increasingly repressed. Just the opposite happens. My sexuality, my passion returns. My sense of inspiration comes forward. It's a very different phenomenon. And I found for myself, Michael, that spending 15, 30 minutes in the morning on my own working in imagination in ways that we can talk about changes my day. It does. And it doesn't only change my day internally. It changes the way that I am with people and the way that I'm working with colleagues and the way that I conduct business.
0: Do you have any like concrete examples of that, Steve? It almost sounds paradoxical, like I'm going to sit alone in my room playing in my imagination and that helps me interact with others. So it sounds like, how does that work? But I don't want you to explain it. I'd love to hear an example or two. All
1: right. Well, let me give two examples. First, I was working with this man named Fred, okay? And he came to one of the workshops that I was offering, and he was doing fine in life, kind of. I mean, part of the reason he came to the workshop was he was feeling, ah, there's something missing. There's something not quite gelling inside, you know? And he was a contractor, so he had a group of people that he supervised and he worked with. He had his own company even. And they were doing well, and he was pleased, right? He was providing for himself, for his family. It was work that he liked, he enjoyed, he was good at. But something was missing, right? It was as if he's going to work every day, supervising others, doing the task at hand. Life was moving along, but something wasn't right. So I suggested two things. One, Fred hey, what would happen each morning if you did a simple exercise, which I can share with you in a moment, but let's not make it complicated. The exercise for him was, you know, during the day, start with just really bringing your curiosity forward. In other words, notice in your home place when you look around, but not with the tasks of the day or the to-do list. We just open a wider vision and look about what captivates your interest your curiosity. I mean, I'm not talking big things, just little things, You know, like your little one does. You just look around and something comes to life and you get curious. And that's what he was doing. Then he looked out the window and he just noticed before starting the busyness of the day or going to the to-do list or looking at the messages on the device before all that, just taking the time to look outside, walk about for 10 minutes or so and notice what finds him. What finds Fred? What glint of sun on the tree, the wind that moves through the leaves? Anything, you know, in the cityscape or a nature place. What captivates your interest? And just be there, just hang out there. And we're not talking long time, 10, 15 minutes or so. All right, now I'm in a different place. I'm in a different attitude. I'm in a different quality of experience and consciousness. Then I asked Fred to do is now during your day just take a pad either a device and or a little journal and notice what comes forward know what hints present themselves what in the world evokes your or captivates your curiosity let's not make a big deal out of this just take a log almost and just write it down well he was used to you know doing that kind of thing but this was different this was about what was interesting to him what Captured his attention, his imagination. He did that. By right, two weeks later, he came back, and we had a conversation. He said, "Steve, look, it. I have this whole list of things. I've actually been doing this, and oh, it's interesting. It is, and there's some surprises that happen. You know, and some things I'm experiencing aren't exactly present, but they are a surprise, and they do captivate my curiosity." I said, "Great. Let's keep going only the next two weeks. Let's do something a little different." He said, "Well, what's that? Well, as you're doing this." And you're putting these things down on your page in the log. If certain things begin to find each other, in other words, we're talking about the different patterns, the web that's beginning to happen, what are you seeing in terms of the background that's now becoming foreground in terms of the connectivity? So he did that. And then he came back the last time, another two weeks later. And then there was something that was really, really a game changer for him. He said, whoa. You know i thought this exercise was kind of i don't know i hate to say it but a little simple-minded at the beginning but as i've gone on something's awakening inside i mean i'm just feeling the actuality that i am really kind of bored in life right at the moment i don't feel a sense of inspiration i don't feel any kind of calling i don't in this exercise i'm just feeling something beginning to move deep inside I said, "Well, what's that? Let's let's look even more fully. And what we did is we sat and he then started to connect the dots, really. He just started to put one hint after the next together and started to create a bit of a mosaic. And then I suggest, hey, let's use colors now and just kind of, you know, really open this up. And of course, it's something he knew. He know how to do this. He does, right? He's a contractor. He knows how to put things together and put things in order and create things and all like that. He called me a month later and he said, you know what? I have to thank you. I said, well, what's that about? Well, there is something really important that's happening in my life. Yeah, I know my business is going well. I like it, but there's something else that's moving forward. I said, well, what's that? So I just remembered in doing all this when I was in middle school and I took a wood shop. He told me <laughs> a wood shop, right? And I loved it. I loved it. I think that's kind of what got me into being a contractor anyway back then, but it was different because I was creating with my own hands. I was creating different pieces of this and that. And he said, I'm missing something. I'm doing so much in orchestrating the work for others and talking with customers and all that kind of thing. I've really forgotten my love, you know, my true calling, my heart. I'm really forgetting my craft, my artistry. And I have to share with you what happens with Fred. He's He actually kept the company, but appointed two other people that were now directing and managing the work, and he has become a finished carpenter, and he is coming back to his true passion. And you know, the work he's doing is so extraordinary and beautiful, and he's prized now here in the Santa Barbara area. His work is now esteemed, and now he's back into his love, his passion, his sense of calling, where did he find that? Not in a textbook, right? No. He didn't find it in a self-help book. No. He found it by opening curiosity and allowing the imagination to reappear. He re-engaged with the curious mind, and he allowed that to muse really something of his belonging, his true belonging.
0: That's an amazing example. Thank you for sharing that. It's so unexpected and yet really not surprising that all he needed to do was follow his curiosity, right? There's no big system there. There's no big complicated practice. Simply remember to be open and curious. It's really very cool. So once someone re-engages in this way and begins to open up to curiosity, how do you recommend that they then continue to move on from there?
1: Yes, well, here's where it gets really interesting, right? Once I engage my curiosity, it is possible to move on in a variety of different ways. Because once we engage curiosity, something opens, just as what opened for Fred. He was collecting the hints and creating the pattern that connects. Notice the web of imagination, that tapestry, and that opened to his sense of calling, his true calling, Right? For me, in the morning, you know, I'll do dream work first, then I do a little bit of this and that, and then what I do is go on what I call the dig. Now, that's different than doing traditional dream work or even meditation for that matter. It's meditative, it's contemplative, but there's something different that happens. And for me, it's really a matter of first bringing the courage that's required. To stay in the praxis, we all know, right? And then we know that once we're in a praxis, if we're experiencing positive outcome, (laughs) that's the motivation to stay in it. And for me, it is a very positive outcome, and for the now thousands of people that I've been working with. And that is we find a place and we invite ourselves into a portal, and the portal goes down into an exploration. And it's not complicated and it's not structured and it's not prescribed most of all it's not prescribed because remember what i shared that the imagination the deep imagination the autonomous imagination the imagination that like a child lives from the inside out that's imagination right very different than the constructed imagination or imaginal thinking or all that kind of thing so we invite ourselves to a place for me i call it a portal And then we're going to go on a journey. And we're going to journey in that imagination. Now, children do it naturally. So we bring ourselves to this place. We open the child's mind, the curious mind. And we journey. But we don't journey with the ego alone. In other words, I'm not the leader in the journey at all. In fact, just the opposite. For me, it's just a quick little reframe. The call goes out. The gathering begins. What do I mean by that? The call goes out, meaning, hey, just like a child, there are imaginal figures, right? And let's not make light of them or think that this is like superficial. Imaginal figures, these are our soul companions. These are the figures that are so important to us. They're figures that carry the sense of our ancestry. Now, I mean, we're into the Halloween time well Halloween is a bunch of costumes and it gets commercialized but of course the actuality of this holiday has something much more to do with parties costumes and trick or treating all those are rituals that deepen into something much more essential because what I'm doing is I'm accessing those imaginal figures these soul companions and I'm bringing to them a kind of relationship. For children, it's putting on a costume and becoming them. These imaginal figures that are part of our inner life have body and pulse. They're they're actual embodied entities. So I want to befriend them, get to know them, and then invite them as companions to lead on the place that I call, for me, the dig. Everybody has their own name for it, right? Call goes out, the gathering happens, now I'm in the company of the others. One of the figures is a guide figure, always. Another is a support figure, always. Another is a figure that offers a certain kind of protection, always. And then there's many, okay? And as time goes on, those numbers of figures extend and expand, and now we're gonna go on journey. Guide gestures, right? Another figure comes forward, and the rest of the troop follows. We follow the figure into not the rational imagination, the constructed imagination. We follow the figures into the depths and the breadth of the autonomous imagination. Do we do anything? Do we make anything of it? No, no. We follow as they lead and allow the imagination to reveal itself from the inside out, the places we go, the figures that we meet, you know, the feelings that we experience, whoa, always a surprise and have a life of their own. And people say, Steve, well, really? Honestly, that 20 minutes, that 30 minutes you invest, what does it come to? Does it actually help me in any way? Well, the answer is a resounding yes, it does. It helps me profoundly, because when I start the day that way, I'm starting from a different place, now and present always present you know i have the capacity to be in relationship to take care of the work that's required of me to run an institution you know to be in a family life to deal with friends and colleagues in relationships and two there's another resource that's working the inner life is present and i'm in contact and in relationship with these imaginal figures and they have stories to tell and i'm listening and when we're traveling and journeying in this quality of experience, I'm listening to the stories that are being shared, and I write them down. It's the place of creativity. It's the place of inspiration. And most importantly, it is the place of belonging. I feel that I'm part of right something more than the outside world. I'm part of a world with a life of its own. Remember, I'm not the leader. I'm one of the many. So I am feeling a sense of deep belonging, connectedness, and really a sense of wonder. That's what opens up. This wonder opens up, and with wonder comes that sense of flow. It's very, very somatic. When I'm there, my body just relaxes, truly. I open. Mm -hmm. And we can talk more, but where do these figures originate? Certainly, they have an origination of their own, and two, that's the place of our ancestry. That's the place of elders. So we recognize some of these figures that have long been forgotten, thus Halloween, right? Recognizing the figures in many traditions that have long been forgotten, a time of remembrance, right? Also, they have a life of their own, and they present. They pick up characteristics of certain animals, certain moods, you know, certain experiences that we've had in our life, they appear as these figures, these entities. So I really get to know them in the company of their presence, have a sense of belonging. I feel resourced differently.
0: Now, as you're talking about this kind of imaginal figure work, which of course is incredibly intriguing, I'm reminded of your previous book, Dreamtending, which of course I know rather well, the, the material of that book, which was dedicated almost entirely to working with figures of this sort. And I'm curious, how has your work progressed? I mean, we're talking about almost 20 years since we worked on the Dreamtending material. It's a long time. And, and I'm curious, how has this grown in the meantime?
1: It really has, right? All the work through the decades now of working with people and dream, working with my own dream, has evolved. That was the push that came through. So working with dreams... As you remember, obviously, we worked on it really um, for many, many weeks, months, even years. You know, we connect with the figures of dreams and the landscapes and the feelings that are in dreams, the actions of dreams. We do. And we allow the dreams to come forward. And we do the three processes that I've described again and again. You know, we associate the dreams to the last 24, or 36 hours of the day. Then we notice how those situations trigger early history, you know, our development, what's coming forward, how does the dream present that for our reconsideration, or pointing out what's being left out, or in the world of today, how are the events of the day triggering everything from trauma, to hurt, to fear, you know, all that is going on, and the dreams will pick that up and present. And then we have the ability to associate to the different images in relation to those contexts. And there's forever, information, offering warnings, offering new possibilities, you know, offering a reminder for the need of expression. And then, of course, in dream work, we take it the next step, which has to do with noticing how those images and the stories that are coming forward have mythological or archetypal reference, right? What mythic motifs through literature or story get evoked? And then we get to know those stories, right? Work of amplifying, amplification in the collective psyche, the human, collective human experience, and read in and really involve ourselves in those teaching stories for guidance, for collective knowledge, and so on. And then remember, dream tending, as I know you do, we go further and animate the image. We allow them to embody, and then we deepen our relationship with the animated figure. So it's person to person, body to body. Now, all that. Is really extraordinary. It is, and it takes dream work into the next evolution, and then something additional becomes possible. Additional. Over these last number of years, I've noticed that the work that we do in dream is a beginning place. Every dream comes with something more than what I've just said. And that has to do with that each dream offers a portal. I was just working with somebody, what, two days ago. In the dream that visited for her, there was a house, right? And there was an intruder, which is, you know, one of the themes in the world today. An intruder happens, there's threat going on. She's afraid. So many people are afraid of intrusion or all the forces that are at work in the world that are frightening and not only intrusive, but aggressive, challenging. And she was in the house and she noticed, you know, that there was a monster somewhere in the house. In this instance, it was a monster depicted by a a person that looked very, very threatening. We worked with the dream and did all the things that I just shared. And that was great. Then she noticed something else. In the dream, in the back, almost you know, inconspicuous at first reading, at first telling. But there was this room that she had never been in. Okay, you know, I'm scared, I'm frightened. I ain't going into another room. I don't know what I'm gonna find there. It might be more monsters. But she had her support figures with her, right? She did, because each dream provides the threat, and nine out of ten times offers something of support as well. So we identified the support figures and opened that door and went into that room. Now we're into someplace different. Now what I just shared can happen in a hundred different ways. Every dream provides when we look with curious eyes, right? When we look through a different lens and open our perception, offers a portal into something that is not known, something that is waiting to be known, a place that we can access additional levels of psyche and consciousness. She opened the door and she had her figures along with her. Remember what I said, the call goes out, the gathering is happening, and that was the access place or what I call the portal, into journeying in a different way. We're not in the dream any longer. The literal dream that happened at night, we're now into a quality of consciousness with an abundance and a surprise and a resource of its own. Yeah. So now we paused and we went into a different process. The dream opened the portal, offered the portal, offered access, an opening to a place where there's journeying that was possible. And that's where she went. You know, and it's not like instant karma. It's not like that. It's the beginning place of a daily practice. And I suggested to her, hey, we the next five days. And that's why dreams are so wonderful. Here's the template. Let's go back into the dream for the next five days, each day for those five days, and find yourself at that place where the door can be opened. Bring your companions, your soul companions together, and then make journey. She did, and oh my goodness, what happened for her was extraordinary. You know, she was then drawing and uh, sculpting a little bit, not with stone, but with clay, and her imaginal life just started to come forward. And, you know, when that happens, a different kind of intelligence emerges. It is. There's what I call imaginal intelligence and not that thin imaginal or constructed imaginal or the fantasy imaginal. No, something connected more deeply. I mean, we know this place, right? We all have different kinds of of intelligence. We have IQ, intellectual intelligence, now emotional intelligence, now artificial intelligence, all kinds of intelligence. But something different happens here, imaginal intelligence. And when that opens up, something quite profound happens. And if you're interested, I'll share with you, because I've just been doing research, quantitative and quantitative, on the value of imaginal intelligence in a person's life. I would love to hear that. Okay, well, we can measure it now. You know, we can measure it. So here's a story I'll share with you. I knew that something deep was happening inside of me. Something different was happening. The quality of my life was changing. I had firsthand information that the many, many people, hundreds of people, many more than that, actually, that I've been working with in this way, there's a shift that occurs. And so I wanted to notice even more clearly and more particularly what shift is happening. And, of course, in the world of today, it's not difficult, almost off the shelf. We can measure brain wave activity. And, you know, when we're the alpha state, you know, one thing is happening. You know, it's a little more uh, adrenaline-motivated, you know, the thinking mind is more activated, and on and on it goes. When we go into a different quality of consciousness, theta, then there's something different that occurs. And we know that, And Michael, I'm sure you know. In meditation, part of getting into the theta states, we quiet down. So many meta-studies and research suggest now in theta, creativity opens a little more fully. There's access to a different way of being in soma, in the body. Theta brings a different kind of ease and different kind of creative impulse. And so now we go and we can measure that. For me, I went to this place, Scientific Neurodiversity, it's called Divergence. And they, working with neuroscience, and you put on a crown, just an apparatus that you put on the head, and it measure brain waves. And if you quiet your mind, and and they designed it particularly for meditation, because you can bring meditation into clinical work now, as you know, more than anybody, and you can help people quiet down. And if you're in that place, you're not anxious and you're not as depressed, you're not as agitated, something really much more fully settles. Well, I thought to myself, yes, I know that. But what about if you're in this process of journeying in imagination? It's not empty mind or quiet mind not that. It is actively engaged in the world of imagination, right? So we're in a different space, in a different place. It's not guided imagery. That's something else. Again, that's when somebody suggests that somebody goes someplace in imagination. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being present and really being part of a journey orchestrated by the others of imagination. Again, like children spontaneously are part of a world that is Imaginal for them, but we're in a world that is imaginal in that way, in an embodied way. When we journey into that consciousness, you know, they said, "Look here, let's put on this headset." I had three other people with me, put on these headsets, and let's try it out. And I thought to myself, "Game on! All right, let's do it." Put it on, and of course, everything is biofeedback oriented <laughs> now. So as you. In the experience, and of course, that's what people are doing in therapy. They're giving people these apparatus and they quiet their mind. They can see their theta increase, and then you can see it on a screen, and there's pictures or one thing or the next that indicates that you're there. Well, you know, all four of us that were there were doing fine. They had quiet music going and a kind of meditative quality of place, and we were able to go into theta. And we could feel it, and we had a reading. We were increasing theta, decreasing alpha. It's called the crossover place, where you cross over from alpha primarily to theta mostly. So then I thought, here we go. And I just, you know, went into not just the quiet mind, but now I'm in the imagining mind. Remember, I'm not doing it. I am companioning with these other figures, and we are journeying. Oh, my gosh. The people that were administering the test, I just saw their gestures and bringing their colleagues over to notice, because on the screens that were were giving us that biofeedback, bing, 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 when Theta increased, check this out, 73% increase in Theta consciousness over the meditative Theta. They were blown away. Yeah, I had never done that kind of science with this before, but it made complete sense to me. And the deeper I got involved in the experience that I call the dig, the more that <laughs> bing, 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 bing happened, right? The more theta consciousness. Oh, okay, so that's you know the instruments. That's the science. That's the quantitative feedback that we're getting. You know, And I'm blessed to work at an institution where I have some of the finest research professors and experts that can do this kind of work in a qualitative way. And we did this with 2,000 people, actually, with questionnaires, people that had gone through my program and that had done this kind of work, had 129 multiple-choice questions they designed to measure this sense of theta, right? And then there were, I think, 10 or 15 open-ended essay questions, and then it was all put together and looked at from that point of view. And sure enough, the same happen. The report back as to what happens when you're in this journeying over a number of months in terms of quality of life, creativity, innovation, a sense of well-being just increased measurably. So, you know, I have now both qualitative and quantitative, I call it IQ4. So imagination with the four quadrants, because I have a sense that, you know, when you're in that place, there's different quadrants of experience that are at work that interact with one another. Yeah, so we're very keen on this. And now we're working with the Academy of Imagination, which is a different academy from Dreamtending and or Pacifica, and devoted to this work, to this craft, deepening the research and bringing this work even more fully into the world.
0: That's really compelling evidence, Steve. Do you know if that's been published anywhere?
1: I published the beginnings of the research in the new book, *The Imagination Matrix*. I did that, and what's happening is that it's gaining a lot of attention. It's not surprising now, right? At Harvard Business School, they're changing their curriculum. <laughs> you know they are, and you know for many of the right reasons, and some reasons that are obvious. But this is happening everywhere in corporations worldwide. You know, there's what are called. Imagination incubators that are being placed, and the idea is, look, if we can access imagination, our students they 're bright they are they come they 've been accepted, you know they go through this grueling process to get accepted to get there. They have a background in business, we can teach them the skill set, we can teach them the templates i mean that 's not going to take long and they get that, but what we 're looking for is something else we 're looking for them to open imagination to be innovative and creative, right. Even the machines of today, the new AI opportunities, requires something of imagination to lean into the next evolution, right? Machines can do a lot, even with AI, artificial intelligence. And yet it's imagination that moves through the human experience that informs and shapes the next evolution of machines. So at Harvard, they really spend as much time in their curriculum evoking imagination. And of course, I said, remember that there's a variety of reasons for that. Of course, one reason is the competitive edge, right? You're now in a marketplace competing with all kinds of other businesses. (laughs) And, you know, you need to engage with others that are imaginative and also engage with yourself to allow the next invention or next possibility to come forward. I mean, it was Einstein, right? That famous quote that's worldwide now. That you know, they asked again and again, Hey, you know, how is it that you know, relativity theory? uh," He said, No, it's not about knowledge, there's so much knowledge, it's imagination that makes all the difference. I access something in addition to knowledge, I access imagination, and that's where the breakthrough experiences come forward. So, that's on a bigger level, but in a personal level, the same is true, right? fulfilling my sense of authentic calling god when we're divorced from that we feel so split off you know it's hard i mean we can do it we are asked to do it we're asked to manage our lives but then you know when we're compensating and not fully engaged then afflictions start happening physical and psychological and it's just so energy expensive when we're following another script you know, the family script or the AI script or whatever script it is that we're into. But when we're connected more authentically to our sense of entelechy a Greek word for that sense of calling, then something very different happens. Our health returns, our happiness comes forward, our well-being. And we don't feel alone. We feel resourced. And that's what I find so important now with teenagers and young 20s, right? Actually, if you're interested, I'll, I'll share another story that happened. I was working as a consultant for a tech group in the Valley, Silicon Valley. So I'm invited in. This is a marketing group. And these young people, meaning that in their early 20s to mid-20s, and they're just really good at what they're doing and smart. They've been trained in this since you know <laughs> middle high school. And then there's a group of late 20s, early 30s that has some marketing experience in other companies. It's a whole vast field now, you know, that's really infused with all kinds of things from artificial intelligence to all kinds of computer programming. And it's a whole gig. And they asked me in, the founder of the company, the CEO and the leadership team asked me to come into this group. Now, do I know anything about online marketing? A little, like from one to a hundred, maybe 0.5. <laughs> you know, that's what I know. But they didn't ask me for my expertise in that way. They have enough of that. They asked me to come in because they noticed something was going on with the company. I mean, this was an extremely successful company. But there was a lag that was happening. The people in the company were burning out. I mean, they were working really hard, which is what happens. And of course, in these kinds of companies, they're in cubicles for the most part. Or you know, when the pandemic hit, they're at home in their own cubicle. Either way, they're siloed, right? And also, there was something missing. The morale was down, and the creativity in the company wasn't engaged. Well, I came in, and I offered some of what we're talking about. I offered access to the deep imagination. I offered three exercises that we did together. And we did going from focused eyes to peripheral eyes, bigger vision. We did a breathing exercise, did two exercises in curiosity, one of which I shared. We did another like that. And really... Gave people the opportunity, I was there for two nights, three days, gave people an opportunity to really live in imagination and then share what came forward with each other. Well, just that, to be in community, to share in creativity and imagination was a different place. Then something really interesting happened. When we went around in the group, and I said, Well, are there any questions or anything? It was uncanny. One person raised her hand and said, You know, I've been getting so depressed and so isolated that I just don't feel well anymore. I'm getting sick physically. And another person said, oh my gosh, that's what's going on for me too. And then it was just person after person. They said, you know, just meeting this way and opening up this, the first woman said, you know what, it reminds me what got me here from the beginning. I said, well, what's that? When I was in high school, I loved the creativity of developing new things. And that was the key right there. And what we did next, I said, you know, I'm gonna invite everybody to take a moment, breathe, feet on the floor, body in the chair, just get quiet mind now, quiet mind. And let's remember back what was it that brought you to this company from the beginning? I mean, really, truly. What was the excitement? Or what was it that, you know, really piqued your curiosity to come here? And One person after the next shared what it was, that original impulse that really wasn't of the rational mind only. Yes, the need for a job and to make a salary, of course, yes. And in addition, there was something else. What was the pull? We went around the group and everybody shared the vision, really, that they had for themselves and what brought them their excitement that the company sent out and they felt attracted to. Oh my goodness, it was this amazing unfolding. All right, now we're like, what, a year out? That company has had a renaissance and people are happier, morale is up. It's a very different experience. And they are now journeying on their own. And check this out, once every week with the blessings and the support of their leadership team and management, they come together and talk about what their experience was in their morning imaginal journeys. Can you imagine that? And they are doing great as a group. People are feeling healthier personally, interpersonally, and their products are just really remarkable. They're just evolving.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Steve. As I'm thinking about this and the power of working with the imaginal, which of course I'm deeply resonant Mm -hmm. with and very excited about always, but I can imagine a kind of critique. That this is just some kind of bourgeois, narcissistic, self-involvement project. And, you know, here we are in a world on fire with the natural environment degrading precipitously, maybe even an extinction crisis on our hands. We've got war everywhere. We've got potential starvation coming. There's continuous mutation of new diseases and just all the problems you were describing with young people and the political crisis in the U.S. and elsewhere. The list goes on and on and on. I mean, it's just a meta-catastrophe of catastrophes. And so the question arises like, isn't this just some kind of cope, as the kids would say? Isn't this just some way to make yourself feel better? Well, The Titanic sinks under the waves. I mean, how does this work with the imaginal actually impact the real world? How can we engage with what's actually going on and not just kind of sit staring at our navels in our own little comfortable cocoon?
1: Absolutely. Well, the truth is, the Titanic is sinking in each of the areas that you've named. We know that. We do. So, what are we going to do? To do nothing? We know the outcome, right? The other outcome is we begin to take sides. You know, things polarize. There's conflict. We go into one political dogma or advocacy or another. We conform. And usually that's out of survival fantasy. Well, we're going to have to go this way or everything is doomed. Yeah, there is a need for something new to happen, which is at bottom what this is all about truly, right? When we are in that quality of imagination, it is not whimsical, right? It is not, as you (laughs) characterize, a bourgeois indulgence. No, just the opposite. When we're inside in that way, when we allow the imagination to come forward, we're not caught in the conformity of the actuality of what's inevitable. Rather, there's something that awakens. I call that an awakening story. You know, we are in a story web of imagination, and there are new stories, awakening stories. And if there's ever the need for us to feel connected to the story that's awakening inside of us, and then get into a small community of people that can share with one another the stories that are awakening in them, two things happen. One is I recover a connection to my voice. I'm not subject to That kind of conformity out into the world and then just go along or just get totally depressed, you know, with what's happening and retreat into isolation or feel the grip of agitation as the actuality of what's going on hits us. No, instead, there's an awakening that happens energetically, psychologically, physically. And to be able to bring that enthusiasm, that kind of excitement, And I don't mean excitement in the service of more recreation or competing in a game or all that kind of stuff. All that's okay. This is a different kind of excitement. This is an excitement that has a libido of its own, a life energy, a life force. Much better, a life force, right? When those awakening stories come forward, that's where we're going to hear the hints of the new. The pull of the future is contained in those awakening stories, if there is ever a time and a place that this is being asked, now is the time and the place. We know the other side. You've made the list, and we all know that list now. And the inevitability is obvious at this point. It's being played out. We don't even need to really <laughs> extrapolate or think about it. It's here now. We're in it. Something new is being asked. And I believe the place where the new comes, the origination of the new possibility, is in the deep imagination and in those awakening stories that move through each of us. It's gonna take courage. We need one another. We need our courage. We need to be in the inner community of imagination and we need the outer community of people that are, if not like-minded, are open to sharing with one another in community these new stories.
0: Something that you brought up earlier comes to mind also, something I left off the list, which is artificial intelligence and saw something kind of funny about it, which is we all imagined that the computers would end up doing all the dredge work and human beings would be free to write poetry and make art and now instead the human beings are doing all the drudge work and we've got computers doing all the poetry and making art, you know, yeah. somehow got flipped where it seems like artificial intelligence is almost potentially poised to kind of take over the realm of the imaginal or somehow really impact that or impinge upon it in a difficult way, perhaps even becoming one of the existential crisis factors. I'm curious how you feel about the rise of artificial intelligence and and what that might mean for how people interact with their own internal imaginal.
1: Yeah, well, that's one of the fears, is the takeover of the machine, right? The monster in the machine. (laughs) And the takeover of AI as it now, it's fulfilled so many functions. So, you know, now, as all the sci-fi from decades ago has predicted, Does it even take over imagination, AI? Does it dream for us, you know? And as that happens, where am I in all of it? So I believe that we have to create a relationship with AI. We do. A relationship that's different than submitting to the takeover of AI particularly with children because they're being raised on AI. Unlike some of my colleagues, I'm not oppositional to AI. I mean, I know in the Valley, one of the things I discovered is that a lot of the people that are working in the big companies that are really doing a lot of that work, they hire what we would call caregivers or nannies, right? or pairs that come to their household. They make sure that their kids. And these people are trained in helping the child get off of their devices, off of their machines, and go on nature hikes and go on things like that just to make sure that there's still a connection to the rhythms of the natural world, right? That the regenerativity of Earth, that possibility. And then I'm also aware that in corporations, tech corps, because I was working there and also in Santa Monica, there is this move towards bringing the world outside into the corporate life so that there's at least remembrance of the rhythms of nature and the abundance of that intelligence as well. For me, though, we have to cultivate a co relationship with AI. I mean, you know, honestly, how would I get from one place to the next place? I guess I could, I used to, but without Google Maps, given the complications of the world, it's hard for me, right? So I use AI a lot at that primitive level. But now it's getting so increasingly sophisticated, as you shared, that it's really verging on full-on takeover. And that's frightening for people because they feel they're losing their sense of self. And then there's a sense of, well, okay, this is kind of cool. This is great. But then, as I said earlier, losing the sense of connection to self and to other in a more human generative way. So for me, it's a question of how do you evolve the co-creation the co-creative relationship with it. And let me just share another quick story. My wife and I just were at our oldest son grandchildren. So these are two little ones, four years old, three and a half years old, and the little boy is five and a half years old, five and three quarters to be accurate. And you know, they like to see it. Grandma, grandpa, they love it, right? They see us come over and they give us big hugs and we have a beautiful relationship with them. And of course our son and his wife, they're happy as can be because they get to go out and have some you know, couple's time, right? So we're with them, and I look to my wife, and she looks back to me, and sure enough, like 30 minutes there, and they're both gone. We don't see them. What happened? Where are they? Where did they disappear to? Of course, they both went to the rooms, and they're experts at manipulating the screen and all that kind of stuff. And they're both watching action figures, you know, doing all kinds of things in screen time. And we go, whoa, they're in the technological trance right now. They've left themselves completely, and they are just, you know, eyes open in a blur, right, just like transfixed and gone, really. And we ask, what's going on? And my wife has the idea, hey, come on, kids, let's kind of come out here. They come out, and their eyes are just... You know, how we get numb. She had the idea, look, you know, it's close to Halloween. So you're watching Spider-Man. Is that what you're watching? Yeah, I'm I'm into it. You know, but without very much emotion, just this dead, I'm into it. She's watching a version of Wonder Woman, not Wonder Woman exactly, but a version of that for her age group. And my wife remembers that Halloween, they both got their action figures costumes. That's what they're going to wear. So she decided, she said, Steve, let's push back the furniture, have them get in their costumes, and come back out. Okay, now we're creating a different capacity to be related to technology in a related way. So they go back, get their costumes, come out. So we set the furniture back, and we create an environment where we're going to enact the stories, embody the stories, engage with the stories. Their energy went from one to ten, as they started moving around and interacting with each other and with us and really embodying it, and the conversation just opened, then we sat down to dinner, because we also shared the images that are really exciting for us in the media. So now we're sharing with one another what we're experiencing, but we're doing it relationally and in an embodied way, and it was a game changer. All of a sudden we were back into contact, there was libido in the room, And in this day and age, for parents with kids, the dinner table is going to have to be set with extra plates, because we're going to need to bring the avatars and those figures into the conversation in family. Otherwise, what's going to happen is we're going to separate from, and the kids will be isolated, and they'll come to dinner, eat a few things, and then leave and go right back up into the rooms. And you can just take that story and extrapolate. That's the danger of the world, is that we're getting so numbed by all the AI and the advanced technologies, whether it be you know artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. I know there are new innovations in mixed reality, in mirrored reality, in augmented reality. The promise is that it's going to bring us more deeply and in an embodied way into those kinds of realities, and then we'll be more interactive. Well, the jury's out. The promise is there, and things change like within months, right? But so far, what I'm seeing is the too-muchness and the incredible genius and sophistication of technology. But it's still, you know, it's still the algorithms, the programmer's code that's behind the whole thing. And you know, like I know, we all know, right? Unfortunately, yeah, what lives behind that? The commodification, right? Forever in subtle, subliminal, and very out loud ways. Often they're constructed at the end of the day, to sell a product, to sell something. And that's why I love being connected to the imagination in an embodied way, not a fanciful way, in a deeply felt, embodied way. It reconnects us to our humanity, and we need to bring our humanity personally and interpersonally into the world of today.
0: Yeah, thanks for responding to my question so completely, Steve. It's really so fascinating, and at the same time, perhaps, concerning how people are even beginning to imagine that current level AI, which is really just large language models, is somehow conscious or may have the ability as it grows from AI to AGI, you know, more general artificial intelligence to actually becoming Conscious and having a rich conscious life. There's so much possibility there and also so much uh, potential danger. It's really, really interesting how that interacts with the human imagination in so many ways. So thanks for that.
1: One of the most fulfilling for me personally outcomes of this work has been something that I guess was unexpected in some ways, something that I knew about but really didn't fully. Embody or embrace. And that is the name I'm giving it is innate genius. So, you know, the thing with genius, and there's so many genius projects at the moment going on, and the word is really being used in multiple ways. And often we'll associate that with, you know, one of a kind geniuses. You know, there are numbers of them that we can all point towards. And they come around once or twice or 20 times in different fields each generation, genius. But I've found something new and different, that each person has their own innate genius. And for me, that's the authenticity of our calling. That's what comes forward. Our genius, the question is, how do we actualize our genius? I mean, whether it's a caregiver offering a kind of support, healing to somebody that they're working with, right? The Finnish carpenter, Fred, who I mentioned, you know his genius now coming forward in this artistry, yeah. A parent doing, you know, with a dance with children and the family, the genius of what comes forward with certain people that really embrace full capacity. They're genius. Yeah. And the list goes on and on and each of us each of us truly has access to our particular personal innate genius. Does it belong to us? Yeah. Kind of it does in the sense that we certainly can be connected with it. Does it have a life of its own? That too. Does it have a kind of intelligence? Absolutely. And to end with one thing, that's the revelation that I think is so helpful. Because as imaginal intelligence, as we touch into the deep imagination, as that evolves in our life, something else gets revealed. You know, to the extent that imagination comes forward, we are really offered, I use the word hints, We're offered sparks of that which ignites from the inside, that quality of innate genius. Hey, it's not inflated. In fact, the inflation is, imagine that that is not true, the deflation. It's not inflated nor deflated. It is a just so that each of us, each of us comes into the world blessed with our particular innate genius, our particular spark of opportunity and possibility. That's what we're here in large way to really uh, what, to support, to cultivate. So for me, I think, in big part, you know, to the extent that I personally and others that I'm working with really involve myself with the exploration of the deep psyche, you know, the exploration of imagination, authentic imagination, really get a sense of my becoming, the capacity of what I can gift back into myself, and more importantly, and as importantly, into the world. And when that happens, when I'm with myself, truly, and then with another person, do I celebrate it as an achievement? No. Do I acknowledge and recognize when it's unfolding? Yes. And my next move is to offer something else. It's simple gratitude. It's gratitude because I feel a sense of homecoming, of coming home. And then in turn, offering that back to the people I love in community, people I care so much about. Mm -hmm. And of course, gratitude to myself for really, I don't know what supporting the courage it takes to stay in this kind of praxis.
0: Very good. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Steve. And again, congratulations
1: on your book. Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. It's always wonderful to talk with you, Michael.
0: You too. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice, with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction, to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean, and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation, retreat, If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page.